Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. In a world filled with uncertainty, I am certain that when I come here on Sunday morning that Alan is going to lift me up with his offertory. Suda or Linda are going to lift me to the rafters with their organ music. That Ben and the choir are going to bless us in unbelievable ways. And Zechariah ushers us to the throne of grace. Amen. We live in an uncertain world, but there are certainties. And I'm going to return to a theme that we've talked about several times, but I think that it really has a lot to do with the text that we're looking at today in 1 John, the fourth chapter. I was watching, I was reading a newspaper article the other day. Well, I didn't read the article, I saw the headline. And it was about who is the heir to the English throne? You would think it's Prince William. It's all, it's all about Prince William, but there's somebody else that stands in the way, isn't there? It's Prince Charles. But it's all about Bill and Kate, you know? And the headline said, The Making of a Modern King. Well, that's not accurate at all. Modernity passed away almost a century ago. Whether we like it or not, we've been living in a postmodern world for most of the 20th century. If I were to say there's a modern monarch, it would be Elizabeth. She is representative of the modern certainties of the past. You see, postmodernity has been in the making for centuries. I'd say there may be two or three influences that formed a kind of perfect storm in the 20th century to cause us to question whether or not there really is truth and can we know it? Are there certainties? It begins with the Renaissance and humanism and the focus on the individual, the value of the individual, which is a positive thing, but which has gone to seed in the 21st century. It's all about me. Hmm. Another of those is philosophic and even theological skepticism and agnosticism which was on the rise in the 19th and came to full bloom in the 20th century and now has come together with that other factor. And then also to quantum physics. You know, no two molecules act exactly the same way. You can't identify a position and the speed of an electron at the same time, all that sort of stuff. You bring all these things together and it raises questions in our minds about certainty and Many teachers in our schools tell our kids this. You can't be certain about anything. And it's all about you, and it's all about what you perceive truth to be. And everything that we understand to be truth is reconstructed. This passage this morning reminds us that that is not accurate. There is truth. The title of the sermon this morning is God's Love, From Being to Doing. And the subtitle, I would say, would be something like this. Proving the truth in a postmodern world. You know, when I was a young captain in the Army, the, Ar- the Army came out with a new recruitment, recruiting slogan. It was called, Be 
no do. And if there is a world in which there is, whether it's constructed or not, certainty, it is military life. You know, some of this is about people wanting to be unique. Some of it's about claiming their identity and their individuality. But let me tell you, when a young man or woman goes through MEPS and does their physical and they come out the other end and they're going into the military, post-modernity melts into the background. They take an oath of office and that identifies who they are. They're a soldier. They get a haircut and they look nothing like they did before, but they look like everyone else. They begin to wear dog tags that identify their uniqueness, but every one of them identifies them as being a, a member of the military service. They're issued an ID card. I still carry mine for good reason. If I want to get on at Carswell, I've got to show this. It's individual, it's unique, but also it is uniform. You see, there are things about life in the military and I think in everyday life about being which are uniform. Knowing is the same way. When you come into the Army, you go through a 10-week basic training course, and they teach you all about how to be a soldier. And then you go to AIT, the Advanced Individual Training, and you pick up a skill which is unique, but it fits into the system of things. And you, work, you learn operational war plans to deploy, and those are systems of things. So being is not unique, knowing is not unique, nor is doing. Doing fits into a pattern. You go through exercise, you train together as a team, as a unit. You prepare to deploy as a unit. We show force around the globe with great battleships, not individuals. I know the Army came out with a new slogan about 20 years ago. It's an army of one, and that was appealing to the postmodern mindset. But the army of one is all of us together. You see, contrary to postmodern relativism, I think it's really that way in most of life. The teachers that teach this in school all had to earn a degree and had to be vetted according to certain standards and had to be hired according to a contract that was issued by the government. There's set values of being in the Army, values of who we, who we are, what we believe to be the core values of the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. There are set requirements of knowing. You cannot get into the military unless you pass what's called the AFVAB, the entrance exam. There are standards of doing. They take you out on the rifle range and you qualify and you get one of three badges. You're either, well, you may not qualify. <laughs> or you're a marksman or you're what's next? Sharpshooter or maybe you're an expert. There's the performance test, physical test. And if you don't pass that, and you keep not passing it, you're booted out. If your performance reviews are not sufficient, you don't get promoted, promoted and you're booted out. Now, I know I've talked in the, in the context of a military background. I wonder why. But folks, it's that way in all of life. There are set standards according to being, knowing, and doing which I think are not reconstructed the way we want them to be, but they're a part of nature. They're a part of the way that God created us to be. And it's the same way with the Christian faith. There are standards of being, knowing, and doing. The values of being, when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we become 
Christ followers. We identify with him in being. We become children of God. We read about that from Romans the 8th chapter, part of God's family. In being, Paul tells us then we are sent out to be ambassadors for Christ. There are standards of being in the Christian faith. There are standards of knowing. It's not just knowing about God. It's not just knowing about His Word. It is knowing the Father. It's relational through Jesus Christ, His Son. There are standards of knowing, knowing His will, and His will is revealed to us in His written Word and through the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit individually as God directs us our paths. There are standards of knowing His Word, the Scripture is objectively true. There are standards of doing in the Christian faith, obedience, giving evidence that we are following His will, that we know His way and we want to do His will. Standards of doing, Jesus said there are two great standards. What are they? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second is likened to the first, and that is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus gave them a new commandment, a standard by which to live. In John the 13th chapter, a new commandment I give unto you, that you do what? That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. You see, by this, all persons will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I believe the passage this morning, which addresses this very topic, it's, it's really a commentary on what Jesus said in John 13. I believe that this is an irrefutable, visible, objective proof of the truth of God. How can we give objective, visible, observable evidence to the world that God exists, that his word is true, and that his kingdom is coming? Oh, well, you know, we, we marshal philosophic arguments, and those aren't bad. We make theological statements, and those are good, and they're based on Scripture. We use logic. We mount apologetic arguments, and those are needed. But friends, there is one irrefutable proof that God exists, that His Word is true, and that we are His followers. And John addresses that this morning. In 1 John, his first epistle in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God hath sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this, love, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen. Let's have a seat.
You see, the context of this in 1 John is we can, in fact, know the truth. And he uses that word a little earlier in this passage. Postmodernity would say that, not that there's not truth, but we can't know it. It's reconstructed. You know, really what this is doing is it's describing what John said was going to happen and what Peter said was going to happen. Because just before this, Paul deals with encroaching, arising, increasing heresies, false prophets. In the first six verses, he talks about the spirit of error, which contradicts the spirit of what? Truth. There is truth. Peter, just a couple of pages back in our Bible, and 2 Peter 2, speaks about a time near the end when there will be false teachers, arrogant, speaking empty words, reveling in deceptions. We live in those days where there are those that would deceive us and say there is no truth. But John tells us clearly in this passage, in verses 1 through 6, that we can know the truth. You see, there is a doctrinal test of truth, which he has already covered in the first six verses. It's what the world needs to know. So in terms of being and knowing and doing, it's what the world needs to know. He says this in the previous passage, test the spirits to make sure they're genuine. So how do you know if they're genuine? Is it true doctrine? For example, the Gnostics were saying that Christ did not have a human flesh like us. And this was a rising heresy in that day and time. And it's been repeated throughout history. And John said, don't believe it. It's not true. The docetic heresy is not true. And that is of the spirit of error. There is truth. He came in the flesh. And if there are those that say he didn't, that is untruth. It is the spirit of error. And we know this, you see, because he says in the first six verses... True children of God are from God and can discern the truth because God reveals it to them. How does he reveal it? He says, because they listen to us and those who listen to us know the truth. What's he saying? The apostles who listened to Jesus and sat at his feet and studied his teachings as he unfolded the meaning of the old covenant and then he explained the coming new covenant in him. He explained the word of God to them and they then conveyed it to the next generation. Listen to me, John is saying. I know the truth because the truth giver gave it to me. You see, this is the doctrinal test of truth. It's what the world needs to know. And then in verse number six, just before this passage that we read, John wrote this, you see, we are, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. And then he says this, by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And that's interesting. When he says, by this, we know, I think what he's talking about, I think he's pointing in two directions. I think he's saying in the passage that I have just written, the one that is above, we have the doctrinal test of truth. We have the acid test of what we should believe to be true, that we know to be true. You see, this is the theological teaching. This is the logical argument, and that's necessary. But I also think that he is introducing the next passage. You see, by this we know the spirit of truth and distinguish it from the spirit of error. And then he goes into the passage that we just read. 
And he deals there not with the doctrinal test of truth. He deals with the relational test of truth. It's not the acid test of belief. It's the acid test of action. So we come to the relational test of truth. What the world not so much needs to know cerebrally, cognitively, but what the world needs to see, what it needs to witness to know the truth. You see, the world needs to see that God's truth is in action, that it's objective, that it's visible, that it's observable. Hmm. Our being, our knowing, and our doing as Christians should be those things. They should be objective and not objectionable. They should be observable, and yes, they should be objective. You see... Our being is that we are what? We're children of God. Our knowing is not that we know about God, but that we know God the Father himself through his son Jesus Christ. And our action, our doing, is that we what? That we obey his will and his way. And 1 John has already explained this, or John has already explained it in this letter in two phases. It's interesting, this be, no, do. He's already talked about the truth of being and the truth of knowing, and he's now coming to the truth of doing. You see, in in the third chapter, he deals with the truth of being, and in that he says, you are children of God. Little children, you're children of God. That's the being. And he says there in the third chapter, you show this by not practicing sin, but practicing righteousness. And then in verse number 10, in chapter 3, he says, here's the evidence. You want objective, observable, uh, visible evidence that you are children of God? Then what does he say? Love the brothers. Love the brothers. Hmm. Okay. He's dealt with the knowing part, not just the being part. Earlier in chapter 2, he says, You know God. We know God. And and this isn't just cognitively knowing him. It is you know him relationally. You know his will. You know his way. And what do you do with that? You obey it. You obey his commands. And if you obey his commands, you walk not in darkness, but you walk where? In the light. So this has to do with the second aspect. It has to do with not being, but knowing. So how do we know that we know that we know? Well, we know that because we walk in the light. And then he says this in verse number 10 of chapter 2. 3.10 and 2.10. In verse number 10, he says, there is evidence that you are walking in the light because you do what? What do you think he says? You love the brothers. Wow. Wow. And then he comes to this passage where he talks about doing, not just being, not just knowing, but doing. And he says, doing is behaving. It's behaving as God's, and what's the very first word in verse number seven? Beloved. Act like the beloved. You see, we show by doing By what? By loving as God loves. 
And the evidence of this is found in verse number 7. And then again in verse number 11. If it's not enough that he said it three times, he says it a fourth time in verse number 11. You see, the evidence of this, of doing as a Christian, is that you love your Christian brothers, and by implication also, sisters. So this passage really reiterates what he's already said twice before. The acid test, the relational test, The action test of whether God's truth is accurate or not is that we do what? We love one another. So this passage, how does he describe that? He says, first in verses 7 and 8, he says, he describes who the beloved are. Who are God's beloved? He answers three questions. Who are God's beloved? 7 and 8. And then in verses 9 and 10, he answers this question. What makes them beloved? And then finally, in verse number 10, he sums it up by saying, okay, beloved, what should the beloved do? This is what you should do. Who are God's beloved? They're Christ's followers, aren't they? Who genuinely act like Christ. And he loved his disciples. He no longer called them slaves. He called them friends. Greater love hath no man than this, than any is willing to die for his friends, which he did. You see, he loved his disciples and were to do the same. Six times in this letter, John refers to Christians as the beloved. You know, when we were at Bedford, I haven't heard you say it much lately here, Clyde, but I know that you still believe it and you probably say it a lot. He would address everybody as what? As beloved. What I never could figure out was where the accent went. You know, it's, is it agapitas or agapetas or agapitas I'll leave that to the Greek it's it's agapitas it's beloved six times in this passage he refers to the followers of Christ as beloved three times he links it as we said to proof evidence how do you know that you're beloved because you love the brothers you see we do this because we're born of God he says in verse number seven What does this mean? We do it because we're born again in Christ. We do it then because when we're born again in Christ, we have been adopted, as we read from Romans 8 earlier, before the worship service started. We've been adopted into the family of God, and we become part of his family. We love the brothers and the sisters because that means then that we are God's children. 1 John 3, which we just talked about. And if we're God's children and And John refers to the readers in his letter seven times this way. He says, little children. And that is not a kind of paternalistic phrase. He's not being condescending to them. He's talking to them as a child of God to other children. He's saying, little children, you're part of the family of God. You see, the evidence of God's truth is that we belong to a family and we live that way. And if you're beloved... You should love every member of the family. We do it because we're born of God. We do it also because we know God in verse number 7. We know his ways and we obey his commands. This relates to what I talked about in John 2. That is, we walk in the light and therefore we show this by loving one another. We also do it because Jesus commanded it. We just quoted that passage, John 13, a new commandment that I've given to you, that you love one another. So we show that we know God by obeying this commandment. You see, we know God. We don't know all about God. Nobody does. But we know his true nature. 
And what is his true nature? His true nature is defined here in verse number eight. For God is love. God is many things. God is spirit. God is described in other ways, even in this epistle, in the intransitive way, using is. But his essential nature is that he is love. Uh, You know, this isn't just an intellectual exercise for us. It's not just that we know about him, but we know his love because we have experienced it. You see, God's love is not static. God's love is not just an attribute. You know, we can't, we don't know God just because we can list all the attributes, omniscience and omnipresence and all of those and and put them in a a bag and shake them up. You You don't have God. Those are just attributes. This is more than an attribute. It is God not only being love, but doing love, actively engaging in it. And you see, we're living testimonies of that. We are objective realities that people look at, and we have experienced God's love. And we know that He exists. Why do we know that He exists? Because we've experienced His love. You see, this is the relational acid test that is irrefutable. We're not beloved because we love God. He says this very clearly. We did not love God. He loved us. You say, it says here, everyone who loves is born of God. A probably more accurate translation would be everyone who loves, and it's a perfect tense, has been born of God. What this says is, we're not born of God because we love God. We love God because he has born us again and has given us life. So we're not beloved because of anything that we do in our own power and might. God loves us simply because he loves us. This is a unique, uniquely Christian attribute. Showing brotherly love. That's not what this is talking about. The world shows brotherly love. The, the world shows filial love. And we ought to, too. But this is godly love. This is godly love that is self-sacrificing by which we then love the brothers. Hmm. It's not merely brotherly love. It's something the world doesn't quite understand. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then he talks about the implications of not loving our brothers in terms of being in verse number 8. If we are not loving our brothers and sisters in the body, it raises doubts. What does it raise doubts about? It raises doubts about our identity. If we don't love the family, are we in the family? Whoever does not love this way, he says, does not know God. So when Christians fight and they show enmity and strife and bitterness and rebuke against each other to the point that they fight, that is an indictment, friends, about their very identity. It raises questions about whether they're in the family of God. At the very least, what it does, even though they may be in the family and every family is imperfect and we all sin, When we show hatred for the brothers and sisters, it negates our witness for Christ. You know, in apologetics, we we try to speak the truth. We try to fight post-modernity. We try to say that, 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 that this is true. But folks, if we say this is true and we don't live it, the world knows it. When Christians fight, they're disobeying God. And they actually turn people away from it. He deals with the second question in verses 9 and 10. What makes us beloved? 
Well, there are three things in this part of the passage, I think, that tell us what make us, makes us beloved. First of all, we have received God's unconditional love. Secondly, we have life because God has sent us his only begotten son. And thirdly, he has erased the sin in our life by sacrificing his son. We have received God's unconditional love. That, that makes us beloved. You see, in verse 10, he says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. God loves why? This passage is telling us that he loves simply because he loves. He doesn't wait for us to love him to start loving us. In fact, if he waited, he would never love us because we don't know how to love that way. You see, his love is not static. His being turns to action. And his love is not prompted by anything that we do. This is agape love. It's unconditional In fact, we love him because he loves us and not the other way around. It's not a self-serving love. God doesn't love us hoping that we may love him and then he will love us more. He loves us with an unsurpassed love from the very beginning. And therefore, we are beloved. We're objects of his mercy. That is what makes us beloved. That's what makes us loved ones. John 15, Jesus said to his disciples, It was not you... Who chose me, it was I who chose you. Titus puts it a different way. He saved us not because of our righteous deeds, but according simply to his own mercy. You see, this is agape love. We have experienced unconditional love. Secondly, we have life because God sent his only son. Verse 9, God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And of course, This is simply a parallel passage to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave, here it says sent, gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. His only begotten son is the son who is beloved. You know, the Hebrew word root for this idea is yahid. and, And it means uniquely beloved. And in that, it can be translated a couple of ways. Uh, in, in Genesis, the 22nd chapter, when you look at the Greek translation of the text, when it speaks about Isaac, that word yahid is beloved. And yet when you come to Hebrews, the 11th chapter, when it talks, uh, this New Testament, it talks about Isaac, it uses a different word. It uses only begotten. You see, John's term for Jesus was Monogenes, that is, only begotten, uniquely begotten. He uses it four times in the gospel. It's interesting here, when he talks to the believers, he uses a word, agapitas. And that's what the synoptics use to describe Jesus. Beloved, at his his baptism, this is my son, my beloved son, my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He says the same thing on the mount. The point is this, those two ideas are part of the same concept. God sent his uniquely beloved son. The uniquely begotten and beloved son. And the father loved us so much that he gave his most precious relationship over for our salvation. He sent his only begotten. He sent his beloved one. And when we come into the family of God, as Romans tells us then, we become beloved. We become joint heirs with Christ. We come into the family of God. We become children of God. And because of that, 
John can call us beloved. There's a third reason that we're beloved. It's because our sin has been erased because God sacrificed his own son for us. He loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Rare word in the New Testament, used only twice. It's closely paralleled to that very last word that Ted read in Romans 5 when it spoke about reconciliation, but it's not exactly the same thing. No, it means to purge. It's used only two times in the New Testament, both by John, here and in chapter 2. The, the Hebrew word kafar means to purge, to cleanse. You see, the law said this, in order for sin to be cleansed, for it to be eradicated, there is the, there is the redemption, there is the, the, the payment, there is the reconciliation, the restoration of the relationship, but that cannot happen if the sin has not been purged. It must be erased with a perfect, unblemished blood sacrifice. And in that respect, Jesus was the perfect Isaac. You see, what God told Abraham to do and required of Abraham, but then he relented and did not make him sacrifice his son, God did for us. He sent his only begotten son to be the perfect sacrifice, to be the Lamb of God. And he explains this very clearly in 1 John. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin in chapter 1. This empowers Christ to be the intercessor, as we talked about last week, in chapter 2. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the, and here's the other usage, propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And he demonstrates this, Christ then demonstrates this through his obedience and his love for us. For John tells us then in chapter 3 that we know love, we know God's love, we know the agape love of God by this, that he laid down his life for us. You see, Christ died for our sins to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that is why we are beloved of the Father. You see, these are ultimate truths. They are knowable. They are certain by our experience. They're not just mere theory. They're not just argumentation. They're not just principles. They are a reality. What are they? God loves you. And if you're watching this morning, God loves you unconditionally. It is an, a, a certified truth from our experience that we have life because he has sent his only begotten son, that if we believe in him, we will have eternal life. It is an absolute truth that God sacrificed his son to cleanse us of our sin. And so we come to the conclusion in verse number 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The if there really should be read since, since God so loved us, and how did he so love us? With the agape love that is unconditional, the giving love that has no thought of reward. And the word there is used in such a way that it's, it means that he gave it fully at one time. It's pointing to the historical sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He loved us so much that he sent his son and he gave his son as the perfect sacrifice for your and my sin. Therefore, we ought to do what? We ought to love 
We ought to love like God loves. John uses it six times in his letter. We ought to use it more of each other. When we greet each other, maybe we ought to say, hello, beloved, for you're beloved of God and you're beloved of me. We ought to love everyone in the family for whom Jesus Christ sacrificed his precious life. There is an oughtness here. Now, I know that we cannot pay the debt back to God. I understand that. This isn't based on the law. It's based on relationship. In, in doing this, we're expressing gratitude for what he's done. When you greet a brother or a sister in Christ and, and you show love to them, kindness to them, you are simply showing gratitude for what God has done. But there is a kind of debt here. I know we're not paying for what Christ has done, but it's interesting. Paul in Romans 13 uses this same verb, ought to, to describe exactly what is happening here. Owe, that is, owe no one anything. anything. You ought not to anybody except to do what? To love one another. For you see, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. We must love one another sacrificially as Christ loved us. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this. We said a moment ago that he has laid down his life for us. And it goes on then to say, We ought then to lay down our lives for the brothers. Not just lip service. Not just talking about love. And then fighting behind people's backs. No. We need to give evidence of the truth of God. 1 John 3.18 puts it this way. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And when we do this, we give evidence of three things. We give evidence of our being that we're children of God. We give evidence of our knowing that we know Him and we walk in the light. We give evidence that we do as He did, that we love as God loves. And 1 John 3.19 then sums it up. Then we will know by this. What's this? By this love. We will know by this that we are of, and here it is, friends, we are of the truth. You see, there is objective, observable evidence of the truth of God. Don't let anybody deceive you. Don't let postmodernity roll over you like the tide. There is truth and he is God. He has the true word, which he has revealed in his scripture. And the truth of God has been revealed in our hearts by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he loved us so much that he died for us. The world does not understand this. This is a, a, a love that the world does not understand. The, the love that you see out in the world today is a self-focused love. It is all about me, the world would say. They don't understand it. But friends, when we love each other, when we give evidence, objective, living, breathing, passionate, merciful, compassionate evidence of God's love, they sit up and take notice. One of the most powerful apologetics that we have at our disposal is not a theological argument. It's not a philosophical debate. Although those are important, it is living out the love of Jesus Christ. It proves that God exists. It proves that he loves us. And it proves that we know the truth 
Romans 8. His spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. And we can call out to him, Abba, Father. And we know that we're part of the family of God. And friends, that is irrefutable. Father, this morning, we thank you that your spirit bears witness to our spirit that we indeed are your children. If when your son Jesus Christ came to a world that did not know him and would not claim him, if we will claim him as Lord and Savior and believe in his name, we are given the promise that we have the power to become your children. Father, our prayer is this morning that someone who has heard this message, who has maybe sung and listened to the hymns, has listened to the praying this morning, that all together your spirit speaks to their heart and draws you magnetically through your power to your bosom and that they will surrender their life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.